The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin, and today I've got two guests in the studio with me. One is Novia Hu, and the other one is Melinda Wang, and they're both uh, co-founders of No Mel Skin Care. Well, let's meet them first. Well, hi, Novia. Hi, hello, Shirley. Yes, and hi, Melinda. Hi. All right. <laughs> so excited to be here. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Now, um, first of all, um, I want to get to know you guys a little bit, you know, personally. And so, like, Novia, what's your background? I mean, what? Well, um, um, um I would say I, I, I grew up in New Zealand. I spent most of my life, um, teenagers or in New Zealand. So I would say I'm a Kiwi. Uh huh. <laughs> okay. Not a bird, but. <laughs> and why are you back in Why are you back in Taiwan? <laughs> Oh, I came here for working holiday. Okay. Oh, yeah. So and I stayed. And you stayed. When was that? Last year, you mean? No, or? it was like ten years ago. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. So, but what kind of working holiday? I'm so curious. I no. don't know what what Taiwan has to offer in terms of working holiday. <laughs> I don't even. Know. I always had a dream. Just wanna, uh, maybe speak in Chinese. My, oh, like my roots language to to um, live and to work. Mm. Um, so I chose Taiwan. Yeah, I've never been here before. So you you have? Yeah. No, I haven't. Oh, you haven't? Yeah, and ten but, years ago. So I chose here. Right. Well, I guess it's either China or Taiwan, right? But you chose well, Taiwan. my dad uh, wanted me to go back to Hong Kong or um, that part of uh, the the Asia. Uh huh. But I used mm. to go back every. Two years, yeah, in my um, like uh, education, the school life. Oh, so just go back for uh, visiting friends and some families. Wait a minute, you were born in Hong Kong? No, I was born in China. Oh, in uh, China? my my dad, my mom and dad um, traveled quite a bit, and my dad's a businessman. Uh huh. So we fam our family moved quite a lot. Oh, okay. So, so you figured- settled in New Zealand. Oh, I see. So you figured that you've already been to Hong Kong. You wanted to try I, a new place. Exactly. It's uh. it's too familiar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like challenge. Right. <laughs> and besides, I mean, they speak Cantonese in Hong Kong. And yes. here, you would learn Mandarin Chinese. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it's a bit more challenge. Right. <laughs> okay. But good choice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And what about you, Melinda? What's your background? Um, I grew up in Hong Kong, actually. But my dad's Taiwanese. My mom's Cantonese. So actually... Every during Chinese New Year, I come to Taiwan very often, and then I went to U.S. L.A. for my high school, and then I ended up in London for my university. So my dad retired and went back to Taiwan. So he was like, after I graduated, he was like, "Oh, do you want to come to Taiwan, like take a bit of a." Break, like take a holiday, and then get the townies passport. So basically, I had to stay here for a year without leaving the country to get the passport. Oh, okay. and then I ended up, I guess, falling in love with this place. So when was that? I mean, when it you was, first? Came? I think it was like six years ago already. Oh, actually, okay. and so you've just stayed on. Since I just then. stayed. Yeah, I just ended up staying. <laughs> See, you know that's how it is. People they come to Taiwan and then they just fall in love with Taiwan yeah. and just stay. 
just like with my colleagues yeah. and all these other expats and foreigners that I know. Yeah. Well, anyway, this is a beautiful place, definitely. And so then um, you're both apparently like with the same background, I mean, education-wise. Hmm. Quite similar. Yeah, we both studied uh, fashion design. Yeah, right. Whereas Novia, you studied in New Zealand. Yes. In and Oakland. then... Right. And um, and Melinda, you studied in, in London. London. Yes. Okay. And then, so you guys met in Taiwan, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for how? I mean, I mean, it's, Taiwan is a small country, <laughs> but, you know, it's a small world here, but still. Yeah, I mean, how super did you guys... small circle. Yeah. yeah. So how did you guys met? We met through a mutual friend, actually. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we just kind of met and then we really clicked. And yeah. then we were talking about... Um, starting a business together, basically. Once we met, we have yeah. a lot of things in common. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, Background-wise, uh, language-wise, and just uh, all the things we like. Mm. So it's really interesting. It, it, you don't always meet someone like that. Mm. I know. Yeah, right? Yeah, it's hard to find people that you click together, you know, yeah. that, that you really get along with each other. But you guys, you both don't have business background. <laughs> yes, we both don't. <laughs> <Not> really. <laughs> So this is quite a daring endeavor. So, yes. um, yeah, but I mean, for you guys to, okay, first of all, I guess you found that you guys really click together and um, there's a lot of things that you guys are in common with each other and you kind of, I'm sure you feel very comfortable with each other. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so then led to thinking about starting a business together. But I think to me, that's really bold because mm-hmm. I'm not that bold kind of person. I like to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't like challenges. Like, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've heard also how people, they started were off, you know, a business together. And then after some time, they get along and, mm-hmm, you know, yeah. they, they, you know, go, you know, their own ways. But um, it's really hard to really find people that really can stick together. Actually, yeah. I think you guys had very uh, naive thinking mm. that you guys wanted to do something together anyway mm-hmm. without yes. knowing much about what it would entail if you really do start a business together. Yeah. What was the very first idea you guys had together about doing something together? The very first idea. Um, I think we went through quite a few ideas uh-huh. yeah i think because originally i wanted to do sportswear because okay. i kind of saw the trend of people like wanting a healthy lifestyle yeah. so i think yeah. that was the first part that i really wanted to do and then and also beach was, towels and beach towels yeah like That's more like well, I, think, I think it was more like uh, lifestyle products all along Okay. I, I wanted to do like Definitely. a lifestyle kind of brand all along. So sportswear, lifestyle, um, beach towels, like these are all like lifestyle products that you would use every single day that you would incorporate into your healthy lifestyle. How many years ago was this? This was like four years ago. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. It's already in a trend about exercising yes. and being healthy and eating healthy and that Definitely. kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But beach towel... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, special kind of beach tower or what? Just yeah, so really trendy, um, like trendy. trendy. It has yeah. like prints on it. Okay. Yeah, I think that was like the beginning of the sports trend. So there weren't a lot of like it is. hip, like cool sportswear brands. Basically, at the I think we just yet. want to do something fun, yeah, and interesting. Mm. Okay. Okay. And then the next one, I think it was like fashion accessories. Yeah. Yeah. Fashion I think accessories. I can't, yeah, okay. I can't even imagine if we do it really do that. Yeah. I that. think Novia came up with some ideas because she was in the entertainment business, right? She did makeup for 10 years. Yeah. Oh, I've been working then. with um, singers mm. in, oh. based in Taiwan and around Asia, mm-hmm. uh-huh. uh, Chinese singers. Oh, yeah. I've been doing really? their makeup for 10 years. Oh, okay. Are you yeah. still doing that? 
Not now. Oh, okay. <laughs> your business, your normal is more important. That's taking right? over. <laughs> taking over. <laughs> oh, I see. I'm curious. How did you guys drop the sportswear idea? So it's sportswear and then fashion accessories, and then I think we just came into a conclusion that you know all girls at the end of the day they love like beauty, they love to take yep. care of themselves, oh, and then we both exactly. love using like skincare. So we're like you know it's not seasonal. Um, you don't have to come up with new products every other two months. So But actually, we do. We, we yeah Wait, we do. We, there's like, totally trapped. <laughs> yeah, there's also like side products these yes. days um, to keep up with like. People's freshness about the brand. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Also, we were um, talking a lot of ideas. Through mm. ideas, we realize uh, from my uh, background, makeup is just something to help you enhance your beauty. Yes. But mm-hmm. the actual canvas, your face itself, the skin texture, mm-hmm. uh, the glow, it's all come from the skin or inside. Mm. Okay. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. You guys actually came up with your own concoction for skincare. Yeah. I mean, how do you even go about doing that? I don't even know what where to start. I thought that's the toughest choice out of you know sportswear and I yeah. guess <laughs> I don't know. That's what I think. I think yeah. at the beginning we uh, starting to um, DIY some product to try it out mm. in my how? house. How do you? Yeah. Do- well, yeah. We started at her house. Actually, we bought like different essential oh, oils, table. and then we were mixing, matching, oh, oh, and really? try them out. See yeah. what's the fragrance, the texture, the texture, everything. So it was wow. It was quite interesting. We were full of passion. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, you guys didn't take a course in you know skincare or mm. making up. I don't know, putting different oils and all that kind of. Things, no, um, we won't. We're not school. academic background. Yeah, right. So you kind of googled and just you know, well, YouTube. Um, to... I think for the f- beginning of the uh, formulation, I have a lot of experience, hard experience. Well, I've been touching so many like hundreds of faces. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I it. know exactly the skin texture, the bone structure. What do you need, and how do you need it for your skin? Oh. So we started off from that point. Oh, okay. Well, still, I mean, for someone like me, I wouldn't even know where to start off. You know, you were saying that you're getting the oils and all the different essentials and stuff like that. What else do you put in skincare besides oils? All I can think of now is just only oils, love and secrets. <laughs> <laughs> But of course, I'm sure there's a lot of love coming from you too. Um, I mean, really, is it just oils? Different oils, or well, uh, we started off with essential oils. Uh-huh. Um, I think back then. Back then, three years ago, <laughs> essential oils are still quite a, a bit of trend, mm. and it's good uh. for skin. But after all the research and everything, now after we rebrand everything, I think we cut off all the essential oils. Mm. It causes a uh, skin allergy. irritation. Yeah. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Sensitivity. So yes. I think it was more like we. We wanted to do oil as our first product because we both used it when we were abroad. We were studying abroad, yes. and then we thought this was a very good product to start with because oils. Um, it wasn't as trendy in Asia yet. I think because of the humid weather mm, in Hong exactly. Kong and Taiwan, I think people just were really, really scared and afraid of like touching oils. So we mm. wanted to come up with something that wouldn't scare you off. That wouldn't be like, yes. oh, it's too thick and it's too sticky for the skin. 
because a lot of people they would use like organic based oil and then that itself because the molecules are still so huge and big um it doesn't actually absorb into your skin it stays on the surface it stays on the surface so it causes a lot of problems actually Mm. Oh, okay. So we wanted to create some a product like that, and then we ended up finding a biotech company to do it for us because we realized obviously we can't be doing this at, at home. home. <laughs> you know, we can't be bottling and selling these oh, at home. Yeah. So, but, but, I mean, you came up with the final product before yes. you went to a biotech company and asked them to mass produce. I will it. say samples, 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 yeah, mini samples. The direction we want to go for. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. They, so you tell them yeah, what you they want. They made it um, in a very professional way. Mm. So I guess this is a secret. You can't let us know what the. Uh, okay, never mind. <laughs> right. So the biotech company, gosh, how do you go about going looking for a biotech company? That was of course to we work did our you? research, right? Mm. Yeah. So so then okay, you went from you know finding your own concoction and then and then you went to the biotech company, and yes. that's when you found out that. They said fine, but you need to have a minimum order. Yes, of- actually, we um we did some research. We uh, also googled. Mm-hmm. Uh, we made some calls. We decide on one or two companies, and we realize there's a thing called MOQ, which is the minimum order. Yes. Mm-hmm. So oh, with no business know. background, okay. that's how we're like, <laughs> okay, minimum order. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> we we did we did um, plan some um of course some money at the beginning because uh, we we wasn't planning for the whole collection. Yeah. Uh, we would just want to make this two oils to introduce um, Taiwan market with the beauty oils for your mm-hmm. skin. Mm-hmm. So we came out with one really really thin. Uh, really light oil, and one the other one is a little bit richer. Mm. Okay, so I think it was kind of like the idea of producing an oil for both of us because yes, we both have exactly. different skin types. So my skin type is a little bit drier, so that's why we created an oil that was a little bit thicker for my dry skin. Okay, and I think she has like combination and then yes. normal skin type. So then mm-hmm. her oil is a little bit thinner. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so we kind of uh, a best friend. Uh, concept, but we design mm. for each other. Uh, yeah, mm. that is cool. Okay, so then you realize that you guys need to have yes. a minimum order, and there was and... like a lot of shocking experience. Like, oh wow, okay, minimum <laughs> order certificates. Yeah, you need oh, this and that. Um, yeah, Basically, and then we just ask each other and say, "Shall we do this? Shall we do this?" Yeah, it was I like risk taking, right? Yeah, like you totally. said, like, it was very spontaneous, but it ended up being very serious. So it was more like we discussed, "Okay, should we get into it? Should we just try it?" Because the minimum order is huge too, you know, and we have to figure out a way how to market the product. Mm. But I think yeah. you know we were both younger back then, right? Four years ago, <laughs> I think we yeah. had that passion and that aggressiveness with being entrepreneurs. So we just kind of went ahead with it. It feels okay. like nothing will scare us. Yeah, because All now right. when we think back, we're like, how did we even do that? Yeah, like, it was crazy. Yeah. We wouldn't even do that. Because I think the older you get, the more like you won't take as much risk anymore. Tune in next week as we find out what obstacles Novia Hu and Melinda Wang had to work through as they start their skincare business. For In the Spotlight, I'm Shirley Lin. <laughs> Classic shorts, poems, and stories from Chinese literature. 
Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Today we're going to look at the love and friendship expressed in a beautiful tongue poem written by Han Hong. He was responding to a poem called Feelings of an Autumn Night that his fellow poet and close friend, Tan Yin, wrote to him. Now, the emperor loved Han's poetry, and three of his poems are included in the classic 300 Tang Poem Anthology. The one we're going to read today is one of them. Han had received a poem written to him by his friend about their close friendship. He cherished it, reading and savoring it literally all night long, until the morning birds began to call. His poem describes those sentiments throughout the night and uses vivid imagery of the scenes around him. It's called Reply to Tan Yin's Feelings of an Autumn Night. The Long Bamboo Mat Welcomes a morning wind. The moonlight is tranquil and the town is empty. A river of stars, the Milky Way, a wild goose alone on an autumn night. Among the beating mallets, and washing stones of a thousand homes. The climate feels late this season. My sleep is likewise late as our souls entwine in tune. Earlier I was singing your elegant verse, unaware the birds had begun to call. The wild goose Han Hong mentions is a classical Chinese symbol of someone alone. So Han is referring to himself. Wild geese were also thought to be of noble character. Here's another translation of that beautiful poem about a very special friendship. An autumn evening harmonizing Tan Ching's poem. While a cold wind is creeping under my mat and the city's naked wall grows pale with the autumn moon I see a lone wild goose crossing the river of stars and I hear on stone in the night thousands of washing mallets. But instead of wishing the season 
as it goes to bear me also far away I have found your poems so beautiful that I forget the homing birds Quite a different way of expressing how he lost himself that night in his friend's poem. And now let's hear one more version. Should I forget the homing birds? They'll sing a summer song for me. They'll thrive here in all seasons just to keep me company. A cold wind creeps under my bed as the city lights at night are shed by the autumn moon and I see a lonely wild goose crossing my eyes. It's truly touching to see the deep friendship these men from centuries ago shared and expressed in their poetry. I must say, out of the three translations, the most unforgettable line to me is, My sleep is likewise late, as our souls entwine in tune. Earlier I was singing your elegant verse, unaware the birds had begun to call. I don't think a love poem could do much better than that. That was one from the Tang Dynasty poet, Han Hong, responding to a poem from his friend, Chen Yin. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Listening to News Playlist. We've queued up some of the most interesting reports for you, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Welcome to News Playlist. I'm Paula Chow, the program host. Since the first case of COVID 19 emerged in Wuhan, China last December, the highly contagious disease has spread rapidly around the world. It has claimed over 510,000 lives worldwide, and there are more than 10.7 million confirmed infections. Here in Taiwan, there are 448 cases, including seven fatalities. The good news is the island has gone more than two months without new cases of domestic origin. With COVID-19 under control in Taiwan, many Taiwanese people are ready for a nice long summer vacation. And with overseas destinations still off the table, they're flocking to Taiwan's outlying island chains. One of these island gateways, a former military garrison, may seem like an odd choice for a vacation spot at first. But it's precisely this military past that attracts so many visitors in the first place. 
The Kinmen Islands are Taiwan's first line of defense against communist outsiders, and even today, they are garrisoned with troops. But they are far from the uninviting sort of place that this description may make them out to be. One of the islands in particular, Dadan Island, was long a military outpost, and it only opened to tourists a few years ago. These days, it's welcoming as many as 300 Taiwanese tourists a day to experience a part of their county's military heritage. Visitors experience everything that the soldiers who used to be stationed there did. This includes a tiring four to five hour hike up and downhill, the only way to get around the island. The hike is worth the effort as there are more than 10 tourist attractions to visit along the way. For lunch, travelers get the ready-to-eat curry meal packs once issued as rations. All you have to do is heat the packets up, rip them open, and pour over white rice for a hearty meal. The island is a stark, rugged place, but it has its own windswept kind of beauty that visitors can't get enough of. Shirley Lin, RTI News. Taiwan's Railways Administration is boosting local tourism in a very Taiwanese way. Limited editions launch sets. A traveler looking to try them all will have to travel quite a bit, and they will have to move fast. The Taiwan Railways Administration is known for its delicious and inexpensive box lunch sets sold on trains and at train stations. Last year alone, it sold over 10 million of these sets. However, COVID-19 has seen fewer travelers and rules against eating on trains. As a result, sales were down by 35 to 40 percent in the first half of this year. Now travelers are coming back, and the lunch sets may be one of the reasons why. To help boost the tourism industry, the train administration has introduced seven different limited edition sets. There are drumsticks with goji berries, chicken fillets stewed in plum sauce, and pork chops with quinoa, just to name a few. They will only be available from June 24 to the end of July. An official with the train service, Yan Wenzhong, says that the food is made with fresh local produce. Only 150 boxes are available a day. Yan said travelers looking to have a taste of them all will have to circle the island because each set is only served on certain trains. COVID-19 continues to see big events scale back across Taiwan and the annual Dragon Ball races are no exception. But scale back doesn't mean canceled. With the coronavirus under control in Taiwan, the races in Taipei are going ahead, and the roars on letting the pandemic dampen the mood. Taipei's Dajia Riverside Park, within sight of RTI Studios, 80 teams of rowers are assembled. They've been training for months now, and nothing, not the 36-degree weather or COVID-19, is going to ruin their big moment. The Dragon Boat Festival has arrived, and that means Taipei's annual Dragon Boat races are on. All through Thursday and Friday, the rowers race each other and the clock along a stretch of the Keelung River. To be clear, COVID-19 is a concern. Though it's been a long time since Taiwan's last case of domestic transmission, the race's organizers are not taking chances. The number of spectators has been capped at 500, and the funfair and food stalls that usually accompany the event are nowhere to be found. But most dragon boat races worldwide have been called off entirely this year. The rowers and their supporters in the stands know they're lucky just to be where they are, and they are refusing to let the event's more modest scale this year bring down their mood. John Van Trieste, RTI News.
The Dragon Bow Festival is known for a number of seasonal traditions that are attached to it. There are the Dragon Bow races, of course, and there's also the custom of eating zongzi, or steamed rice balls. According to tradition, the period from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Thursday was a magical time. That's because Thursday was the Dragon Boat Festival, a time of year when positive yang energy fills the air. And at noontime on this day, this energy reaches a peak. Water drawn from wells during these two brief hours is supposed to be infused with the potent invisible energy. Now, wells are a bit hard to come by in today's Taiwan, but there's at least one place where this noontime water is still drawn up in buckets. It's a 300-year-old well in Yunlin County that's only opened up on the Dragon Boat Festival for the purpose of distributing lucky water. The fact that the well sits just next to the famous Beigang Chaotian Temple is said to make this particular well water even more powerful. The temple's main deity, the sea goddess Mazu, is said to add her blessing on top of the seasonal energy locked within. That explains why the well sees long lines on the one day a year that it's open. Those who believe the water is lucky say that when you're feeling unwell, you can wash with it or use it to make tea. But the well won't be opened again anytime soon, so just be sure not to use up all the water too quickly. John Van Trieste, RTI News. Graduation time is here. Some schools in Taiwan decided to have a different kind of graduation ceremony for a change. That means a break from the usual indoor event with students walking on stage and being handed their diplomas. A school in Hualien had an unforgettable graduation ceremony. The Experimental Primary School of National Donghua University had their students get on their knees and get dirty as they scrambled through a military-style obstacle course amidst sprays of water and mud. But that was not all. They also had to run up and down the stairs five times to get enough stamps to move on to the next stage. There were also races and obstacles they had to overcome by working together as a team. The students thought the course was tough but fun as well. Another school, the Yilan Ponglai Elementary School, also had a unique graduation ceremony. The school is only two kilometers from the sea, and that's where they held their graduation, on the sea in a boat. The school hopes that graduating class can appreciate the ocean, marine life, and all that Taiwan has to offer. Shirley Lin, RTI News. And to end today's program, we have a story about an exchange student from St. Kitts and Navies. The student has brought his country's steel drum music to Taiwan. Li Xiaoti, an exchange student from St. Kitts and Navies, enjoys playing the steel drum. His home country is one of Taiwan's allies in the Caribbean, and Li is further cementing bilateral friendship through music. He has introduced Caribbean steel pan music to kids in the eastern Taiwanese county of Hualien. Li's musical demonstration also serves a chance for him to introduce his country to the kids. St. Kitts and Navis is made of two islands in the eastern Caribbean. It is North America's smallest country with an area of just 269 square kilometers. Puerto Rico and Dominica are its neighbors. The islands maintain former diplomatic ties with Taiwan. When President Tsai Ing-wen visited last year, she was met with warm welcome. Li has just graduated from National Donghua University's Department of Computer Science and Information Engineering. He plans to continue sharing his country's culture and music with more people here in Taiwan.
And that's all we have for this week's edition of News Playlist. For Radio Taiwan International, I'm Paula Chow. Bye-bye. have tried to hide this epidemic, but very soon the authorities um, have tightened their control and now uh, it's back to the original situation. And at least six journalists are still being detained in relationship with the COVID-19 information. Hello and welcome to this week's Online brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Mr. Cedric Alviani, East Asia Bureau Director of Reporters Without Borders, or RSF, said China has never ceased to grip its control of media freedom. More than six journalists and 900 netizens have been detained in China during the coronavirus pandemic, and he said if information had been shared with the international community, COVID-19 would have been contained much earlier. Reporters Without Borders, or RSF, is a press freedom watchdog based in Paris, and the first office in Asia is in Taipei. Recently, RSF released a list of 30 coronavirus information heroes that save lives, and one of them is Dr. Li Wenliang. And to find out more, we're joined today by Mr. Cedric Alviani, East Asia Bureau Director of Reporters Without Borders. Cedric, during the pandemic, more than six journalists and 900 netizens have been detained in China. So does it mean that China, according to your observation, has tightened its control on media? It has indeed. Uh, Well, control on media is not a new thing in China, and it has already been tightened uh, at least several times since President Xi Jinping got into power. In the very beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, there has been a short period when the public's anger was bigger than their fear of repression. And there was paradoxically a short period when um, the the Chinese people online could more freely express their anger uh, about the the way the authorities had tried to hide the, the epidemic. But very soon, the authorities um, have tightened their control. And now uh, it's back to the original situation, which is that it's very difficult to express personal opinion or um, or transfer independent information online. And uh, more than six journalists, and at least six journalists, are still being detained uh, in relationship with the COVID-19 information. To spread the information online, and we know that uh, there were quite a few whistleblowers. And back in December, one whistleblower, Dr. Ifen, is one of them, and Dr. Li Wenliang, who later passed away. These doctors actually risked their lives to sound the alarm in December. So did the coronavirus news make the Chinese government even more careful in controlling the media or the news? Well, it is a fact that if in China journalists 
had been able to uh, do their job without interference from the authorities, if they had been able to report the information they receive, and if whistleblowers and sources hadn't been so afraid to communicate with the media, it is very likely that the uh, epidemic could have been controlled much earlier. The authorities would have been forced to act earlier, and uh, probably the virus would never have left the Chinese borders. Um, the Chinese authorities should learn the lesson, but instead they are... Um, pushing for more media control. So I'm afraid that this crisis could potentially reproduce in the future. But even uh, right now, we are seeing the second wave. And earlier, we have also seen that academic publications will have to be approved by the Chinese authority before actually they go to print. So the flow of academic research has also been limited. So would you say that this, in a way, also leads to the conclusion that China will not share the information once they have discovered the vaccine for coronavirus? Well, information circulation is capital in our world. And censorship cannot be uh, considered anymore as the problem of the people whose uh, information is being censored. Censorship has become a global problem. We can see with COVID-19 crisis that censorship in China can have deadly consequences uh, at the other end of the world. So it's extremely important that democracies would unite and pressure on the governments that try to limit information circulation because uh, this is the only way uh, action can be taken about the problems uh, in this world. You mentioned uh, censorship, and actually censorship system in China is known as the Great Firewall of China, and there's a book um, actually entitled The Great Firewall of China. Could you talk about that, uh, Cedric, from your point of view? Well, the great, what, what is called the Great Firewall of China is a, a very elaborate technological system that allows uh, the Chinese regime to transform Internet in China into some kind of an intranet in, w- in which uh, it's impossible to access uh, a lot of websites and in which uh, communications are being monitored on um, a very wide scale. Um, this practically uh, prevents uh, the Chinese public from uh, accessing certain information if they do not use a VPN. This is censorship. And then there is another phenomenon uh, in China, which is propaganda, which is more like the uh, circulation of information that is not accurate uh, and that is meant to uh, force the people to think a certain way or see things a certain way. So both uh, used together are a very efficient way to uh, control uh, the population, of course. And you, you, yes, you mentioned uh, disinformation. That's disinformation in a way, especially during the pandemic. And it has been very rampant. And some believe that this disinformation or fake news originates from China, Russia, or, 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 or Iran. So, what is your observation on that? Well, obviously, there has been a lot of uh, disinformation content circulating uh, since the beginning of the COVID 19 crisis. It's not always possible to know where fake news, so-called fake news, uh, are coming from. But what is sure is that 
up to the highest levels of the Chinese authorities. There have been a uh, um, deliberate uh, attempt to circulate information, starting with the Chinese ambassadors. Uh, we have seen that in several uh, countries, the Chinese ambassadors were posting uh, content that they knew were inaccurate, but that uh, somehow served the Chinese regime's propaganda. You're listening to Online, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Today I'm speaking with Mr. Cedric Alviani, East Asia Bureau Director of Reporters Without Borders, or RSF. And what can RSF, your organization, Reporters Without Borders, do to prevent the spread of disinformation? Well, Reporters Without Borders has launched a project called Journalism Trust Initiative, which aims at creating a set of standards a bit similar to uh, organic food label that would allow the public to uh, know uh, which media they uh, can trust. Um, the standards would be assessing the uh, news production process, not the contents, not the uh, editorial decisions of the media, but the process by which they uh, produce news. Do they verify information? Do, that, do they have a system? Do they uh, correct information whenever it was uh, proven wrong? Uh, how independent are they from the political power, from economic power? So all these um, criteria will be assessed and uh, will allow in the future uh, the media to have a label allowing the public to, to know that at least they can uh, have more trust in a media that was certified. The, to verify the sources and information, do you work with International Fact-Checking Network? And we know that uh, just earlier this year, Taiwan Fact-Check Center was also established uh, actually uh, in cooperation with the International Fact-Check Center in order to debug misinformation. Fact-checking is extremely important, and especially in uh, the case of a crisis or a specific uh, item of disinformation that starts becoming viral or that could potentially disturb the society's order. Of course, it is not the only solution because fact-checking necessarily happens after uh, fake news started circulating, meaning that it's only a way to try and minimize the problem. I would add that... Uh, Fact-checking should be done by the media themselves, and actually no media should publish uh, contents that have not been properly fact-checked. There is a problem uh, in many democracies due to the digital transition, making the media weak and sometimes unable to uh, afford resources allowing to do proper fact-checking. So this is a global effort. But in this information, there's also um, a lot of uh, media that purposely carry this information. And now the problem is not about fact-checking, but about finding a way to um, prevent these media from harming the public opinion without, of course, uh, going to direct censorship. 
Do you think that China, in a way, also plays a part because uh, they know in advance that in a democracy there's so much competition, so it's not possible for a media institution to do cross-checking to actually verify the source of the information, so they can actually spread this misinformation and it can be used by the mainstream media in a democracy. This is the very reason the Chinese ambassadors are so noisy with disinformation. Because they know that somehow, when the public、uh, receives a lot of disinformation content, they, they they won't necessarily believe this、uh, content, but they are going to start to doubt about everything. They are going to doubt even journalistic contents that they could have trusted. So actually, disinformation is creating a global uh, doubt uh, in the media system, which is of course very dangerous. In the past years before.、Uh, Internet appeared.、Uh, every country had regulation to、uh, prevent the media owners from abusing their power and、um, distribute disinformation contents that would suit their interests. But because of the global space of information,、uh, these regulations do not work anymore. And it's very important that、uh, democracies would take back the control because so far the、uh, space of information is being controlled by the social media, and somehow by a few dictatorial countries. You mentioned China、uh, earlier. That of course、um, can very freely use the system because there is no more protection for the public. And it is quite interesting, I think, for the first time during the pandemic,、uh, that uh, ambassadors uh, in different parts of the world, Chinese ambassadors, all stood up to defend、uh, China in a way. So, do you think that this is a strategy、uh, of the Chinese government? Absolutely, because、uh, they have understood that they cannot censor、uh, every information published on China in the world, but they can be they can make more noise. They can make so much noise that people would rather pay attention to、uh, their point of view rather than、uh, the news being、um, distributed by the media. And you know that in many cases in democracies, the problem. Is not only about the、uh, quality of investigative journalism or the number of in- investigative journalists. The problem is that they do not have the power to be heard. There might be some very good investigation, but the public would not hear about it because you need to have a lot of financial resource to promote what you do, and、uh, th- this is very difficult. So China has no money problem,、uh, and it's very easy. For them to to to、um, to, to、uh, try and、uh, develop propaganda,、uh, Reporters Without Borders last year has published a report called China's Pursuit of a New World Information Order, and in that report we are proving that in the past ten years,、uh, Beijing has been、um, pursuing a plan to、uh, develop its influence and its control in the media worldwide. And that was the first part of our interview with Mr. Cedric Alviani, East Asia Bureau Director of Reporters Without Borders, or RSF. And that's it for this week's On the Line, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Take care. Goodbye.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.